Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It's almost the end of the World Cup. This time next week, we will probably be talking about, well, we definitely will be talking about our upcoming game against West Ham on December 26 when the Premier League returns, but there's still the small matter of the World Cup final taking place on Sunday. Of course, France versus Argentina. Can Lionel Messi finally lift the World Cup trophy or will France retain it? We will see on Sunday. There's obviously a fair bit of transfer speculation going on as well because the January window is is not too far away from opening and, of course, clubs have had plenty of time to prepare and uh, get deals in place or at least start putting wheels in motion for any January business they might want to do. And, of course, Arsenal fans are looking quite anxiously at everything that's uh, that's happening because of, well, where we are in the league and the injury to Gabriel Jesus and, and all the rest of it. So there's lots to talk about today, but we're doing it in a slightly different format. This is the statements format, which is where I'm joined by a guest. I put statements to them, and they have to either strongly agree agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with those statements, which have been provided by our wonderful Patreon members on our Discord. So thank you guys for sending all those in. If you do want to hop on the Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash arsblog, Premier League preview podcast, lots of exclusive content, and it helps support everything else that we do on the site. But today with me to do those statements is James Bench. Hello, James. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much. We're going to go straight into these because we do have some some World Cup ones. So they're kind of kick us off uh, into this thing. And uh, these come from our Discord. The first one comes from Matt, who says, On a purely football level, 2022 is the best World Cup in decades. I would... Oh. No, I would disagree. Um I, I, like immediately your brain kind of has to go to the, well, which did you think was better? Um, and off the top of my head, I'm struggling. Mm. I thought that maybe the sort of the best teams were a little bit better in 2014 when Germany won it. And I thought, I mean, we forget because they got absolutely mullered in the, uh, in the semifinal, how good Brazil were. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this though, is it's, I mean, it, it's certainly up there. We all forget, though, at this stage of the tournament, we all forget those dreadful nil-nils. I've just been kind of going through the tournament, <laughs> writing up my 
final bits and pieces. There's about 13 goalkeepers with multiple clean sheets at this tournament, which could be an advertisement for great goalkeeping or could be a reminder that things like Denmark nil, Tunisia nil did actually happen. You've forgotten them all, but yeah. those of us that work in the football media can't. I mean, I think the knockout stages though have been fantastic. We finally got a bit of variety of style. I think that that's been the thing that's hit me from, you know, from big and little teams, even within the, the space of one team, Morocco mm. have been wonderful. It's had great stories. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but on a, on a football level, I, I disagree slightly, but um, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. The football. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this question would require me to remember in detail all the yeah. World Cups that happened in the past and they all sort of blur into one, you know, beyond the final. Uh, and I know, you know this is partly because Ireland aren't involved and I'm not that invested. Like when you watch something as a neutral, it's just like, yeah, okay, that's good. It's over now. Uh, so like um, heartbreaking defeats in semifinals, they don't tend to stick in your memory if you're not the team that's been heartbreakingly beaten in the semifinal, you know? So when I think back to the last World Cup in Russia, I don't really remember very much of that World Cup to sort of compare it to this one. I think the only thing, was that the one where, where the guy Pavard scored that amazing goal? The kind yeah. of bendy one. Yeah. Was that was that in the Argentina game as well? Could France, have been. Yeah. France-Argentina 4-3. So it did have a lot of games like that. I mean, I'm immediately suspicious of the 2018 World Cup because an England team with a midfield of Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard got to the semi-finals. So <laughs> something is fucking up with that tournament. <laughs> to be fair, I do think this has been quite enjoyable. I think part of it is because we have seen... Look, everyone loves the, the underdog story, right? Um Teams like Germany, teams like Spain, Brazil going out means that there is room for another nation, another country to tell their footballing story. And like you said, I think Morocco have been, uh, they've been just so enjoyable. I thought, I thought even uh, in the game against France uh, on Wednesday night, they were just super, you know, they really did play some lovely stuff. It wasn't just like, we're the plucky underdog, have a go heroes, you know. They actually played some really, really nice football apart from, you know, obviously not being able to score a goal. So I think that part of it um, has been quite, exciting you know and quite interesting again when you're looking at it from that neutral perspective yeah I, I i think with morocco the really interesting bit is i kind of and i wrote this after the game i kind of came away from that game reaching the conclusion that actually morocco could have won the world cup you know you know obviously if they could have beaten france they could do it again in 90 minutes and i think this is the first tournament i can remember in a very long time where we've had a team that you could, you know, and they've been the better team. They've done it their way, but which is ultra defensive and cautious. Mm. But actually, if you go and look at it, Bono's hardly had a save to make um, in a lot of these games. You know, so it's, it's a team of high ta high talent individuals. I, if I'm Mikel Arteta, I'm sure we'll talk about transfers. But I'm looking at both of those Moroccan midfielders, Amrabat and uh, is it Unahi? Unahi, I, yeah, just, yeah. I was just salivating over this guy. Just get. And that we we never knew that. I, I'm kind of of an age, I think, where maybe with the exception of sort of 1998 and a little bit 2002, there weren't these unknown teams of superstar players. And Morocco have delivered us that. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this one then, because it's sort of um, not quite World Cup, but I think it, um, I think it, it sort of 
ties into what you're saying. It comes from Freddie LJ, who says, the gap between the top level and the bottom has closed due to athletes playing the game to the loss of the maverick players. A Gaza wouldn't make it in the modern game. Again, slightly disagree because, I mean, I, I, I don't know. The Gaza, a Gaza would, but he would play differently. I mean, there are still teams. The two finalists are playing with classic number 10s. Antoine Griezmann last night did some things that a classic number 10 doesn't do. And in the second half, it was like watching N'Golo Conte, I have to say. But, um, you, you know, space has sort of been made for players like Mbappe is a prime example. Of course, he is a phenomenal athlete. But I think the point that, that people always think about is they always think, well, you know, a Gaza, you had to make allowances for him when your team didn't have the ball. Messi... Mbappe, you, if you're the best in the world, if you're a real elite player, your team's still going to make allowances for you outside possession. I think it is fair to say, though, that it, not so much athletes. I think maybe the big equalising force has been coaching. Mm. Um, again, we're not going to keep, I'm sure, well, we might keep going on about Morocco. But, you know, Regawi, however you say his name, did such a, a fine job drilling his team into a unit with you know, that could defend with 10, attack with seven or however many. I think that to me is is where, you know, the dissemination of knowledge, which I'm not in a position on a Arsenal podcast to maybe explain how it is, how, how coaching knowledge has moved so rapidly. Um, but I think that to me feels like a, a more of an equalizing fact than just players are, are more athletic. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point uh, because clearly there is something, uh, you know, on a tactical level, a coaching level that has also been raised. If the bar has been raised in, t in player terms, I think it has been raised in, in coaching terms as well. And there seems to be, I don't know, you, I'm sure you saw on Twitter, like all the stuff that was going around before the, the, the France game that the Morocco coach you know, once was on a Zoom call with Mikel Arteta, who was explaining how, I think they said, how they uh, won the FA Cup final against Man City, which, you know, as we know, is, is not the case. Uh, it was uh, Man City in the semi-final of the FA Cup before we beat Chelsea in the final. So, you know, all these connections and there seems to be, I don't know, maybe there always has been, but we're only more aware of it now, sort of, uh, a willingness to share information and techniques and, and what have you, uh, even across sports, if you like, because we've seen Mikel Arteta talk, uh, Mikel Arteta talk about rugby. And he, we know he's been out to LA to um, talk to the LA Rams uh, head coach. I don't know what information they might share. It might be man management more than, uh, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of their respective games. But with regards to the other one, the, the initial question about the gap between the top level and bottom. I mean, I think I agree with that only in the sense that a Gaza and other players like him the sheer level of their talent and ability kind of meant that they didn't have to focus as much on the physical side of the game the athleticism yeah. the fitness you know uh, Ray Parler might be a great example in the sense that you know this was a guy who worked his arse off every day, you know, and, and knew that when it came to stepping across the, the line onto the pitch, there were going to be players who were just naturally more talented than he were. 
Um, but he had to make up for it with with hard work. And I think that the, the perception is that those guys, the Gazes, um, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples, you know, guys who strolled around and were just... Raquel, just, May. Raquel May. is another one, yeah. Um, th- there's loads of them. I'm just, my mind has gone blank. But um, down the years, these guys didn't have to be the fittest. They didn't have to be the fastest. They didn't have to be the strongest because what they could do with the ball was just phenomenal it was sort of beyond uh, on a on a different level and i think now the athleticism and and the physical profile of players means that it becomes easier i'm not saying easy but easier to deal with those kinds of players who've got the skill because they can't just run past you as quickly as they would because you know you can keep up with them in a foot race etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah you've taught me around there I, uh, I i do agree with that actually yeah i mean yeah yeah okay um willie wang wang I didn't read that name before. <laughs> I just was copying and pasting questions and I was going, that's a lot of W's in there. I wonder what that says. But now, Willy Wang Wang. Um, he says, if Messi and Argentina win the World Cup, Messi is clearly the best football player ever. I mean, I I agree strongly, but only because I already thought he was. But I, I have to caveat this because you will have listeners who will remember Diego Maradona. You will have listeners that remember Pele. I don't. Mm. So, you know, I mean, and obviously I have seen clips, I have seen wonderful documentaries and videos about all that, but it can't kind of quite replicate it. And we all forget when we talk about these things that there's no, there is no answer. We're never going to reach consensus on the greatest footballer of all time. So just take your pick from who you like the most. I like Messi. I think he is the most wonderful talent uh, because, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, he has married this supernatural vision for the game, this ability to do things that make you gasp with a physical strength and durability. I mean, mm. he has now been at the top of this, the game for must be at least 15 years. I don't have a calendar to hand. It could be, he could be at the top of the game for 20, the way he's playing right now. I think that for me, maybe is the difference between Maradona and Pelé. You know, of course the trophies matter, but uh, you know, George Best never played at a world cup and, Erling, you know, Erling Haaland isn't not the best striker in the world right now because he's not played at a World Cup. Mm. You know, I don't think the World Cup trophy changes it for me. I can see why it changes it for other people. And like, you know, it matters to an extent, but, you know, go across sport. There are great, great players who never won the biggest trophies. Um, yeah, for me, Messi is just the greatest. I'll be absolutely devastated when he, uh, when he goes. Not even close. Yeah, I mean, I just think in terms of the question, I don't think he needs to win the World Cup to be considered the best player of, of you know our generation. I know there's like a, an age gap between us and and you know be, between us and some of the people who are listening even, but just in our sort of lifetime, you know, I know Maradona existed um, and was just unbelievable, but to do it as long as Messi has and as consistently as he has is. Um, you know, it's amazing. And look, you'll say that and there'll be somebody shouting at this going, yeah, but he was playing for Barcelona, playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world. He didn't, you know, drag, I don't know, um, Villarreal, you know, to a, to a La Liga title and all that kind of stuff, the way that Maradona did with Napoli. And look, football is different. The world is different. The football world is very different now. So it's, uh, like you say, down to personal preference. But look, he is the only player I've ever seen 
score four goals against Arsenal that it hasn't immediately gone on my shit list because it was just so unbelievably impressive from a footballing yeah. perspective. You know, sort of the, oh, we angered him and now he scored four goals. And <laughs> We've done everything quite well, actually. <laughs> uh, and he's just fucked us. Yeah. Uh, many times, many yeah. times. I mean, having said that, like, especially now that Arsenal may well be back in the Champions League, mm. Leo, if you do win on Sunday, what a time that would be to retire. Just call it a day so we never have to see you at the Emirates. Is it, isn't he going to Inter Miami? Isn't that the whole story that he's going to Inter Miami, you know, to... Yes, there are I... certainly offers from, um, you know, other parts of the world. Yeah. I think there are people in Saudi Arabia that would be very keen to reignite the rivalry. But, uh, mm. yeah, the lifestyle appeals to him as it would to anyone. I think so. It's very funny to consider that as a prospect, though, isn't it? Because um, Phil Neville. Well, yeah, Phil Neville. Um, I saw the the quote. There was a quote earlier in the tournament about it was from uh, Lionel Scaloni, the the Argentina manager, who said something like, "Well, I didn't take him off because you know he didn't say he wanted to come off." Something like that. I'm paraphrasing, mm. you know. B- but basically, Lionel Messi does whatever Lionel Messi wants to do. Uh, in terms of his playing time and, and everything. I was like, the end of the Argentina game the other night, 3-0, it's clear they're going to win the game. He's there walking around, sort of massaging his hamstring and his groin and everything else. And I'm thinking, why, why don't you just come off? Why don't you just, you know, what happens if in the last two minutes of this game, Dejan Lovren just steams you out of it and crunches you and you miss the World Cup final. Like, the, I'd be like, self-preservation, get me off here, we've won, I'll come back on and have a good clamper. But, he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do that. And the idea of him going to Inter-Miami and, you know, Phil Neville's team talks. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Timorous Me says... The 32-team group stage at the World Cup is now the perfect number, and expanding to 48 in 2026 is a big mistake, especially with groups of three instead of four. I strongly agree. Mm. I think something... The only thing I would say in defense of expansion is that something needs to, to give in that I would like to see more talented teams, especially from Africa, because you look at the teams that aren't there, Nigeria, Egypt some of the world's best players, some, you know, some really good teams mm. just never had a chance because they were in these sort of murderous rows of, of qualifiers. Was mm. it um, Ghana knocked out Nigeria? I can't quite remember. Senegal knocked out Egypt. I mean, so this is the equivalent of Italy playing off against France and the yeah. Dutch playing off against the Spanish for, for the World Cup. So, mm. I mean, I, my view on that would be, I mean, you, there is space to be made uh with UEFA nations, to be frank, and maybe some from, um, I mean, I don't know, then the Middle, the Middle Eastern team. So that's the kind of challenge you get is then you go, I do, I want to see more good teams there. 48, if it's groups of four, I'm not going to, I kind of would like to see it in action before I hate it. Groups of three, I really do not like the idea of, especially all the stuff that they're going to have to do or they think they might have to do to avoid collusion with penalty shootouts before the games. That is baffling. Um, I mean, 12 groups of four. It's, I, d- I don't know about you, and I mean, it has got a bit tiring towards the end in a professional capacity, just watching this World Cup. I think it might feel a little bit of a slog getting 48 teams down to one 
Um, mm. the, the challenge is always that, that if you, you don't like something, you can't really go back. No one is ever going to propose cutting the numbers at a World Cup because I would like to see how 48 teams works. But to do that, you've got to jump in head first and, and know that it's not changing. So I would, I would agree. I'd like to keep it at 32. Yeah. Change with the balance. I think, yeah, I think it's been sort of the, the perfect amount of football, even if, you know, in this particular tournament, it's all been very squeezed in for obvious reasons because it's mid season for, you know, for a lot of countries and, and everything else. But it does feel like a good number. And, you know, if you talk about nil nils and things like that at the start of, of this tournament, I don't know. Um, 48 seems a lot. But I do think there is, like you say, room for expansion or at least making the World Cup more available um, you know, to some countries and to some continents. Um, and maybe that sort of raising of the bar, if you like, uh, will help in that sense. Like not the sort of the, the traditional powerhouses of, of football, you know, Europe, um, South America, have sort of had a stranglehold, not a stranglehold, but, you know, have dominated the World Cup for years and years and years. And, you know, Morocco, as we've said, have been fantastic, but the first African team to make a semi-final in all the history of the World Cup maybe tells you that there does need to be a change in representation. How exactly that happens, I don't know. And um, that requires us to to um, put some faith in FIFA to, to make that happen. So um, here's one from me. Gianni Infantino wearing trainers with a suit should be the final straw for his FIFA presidency. It's so strongly agree. It's fucking disgusting because do you know what it is? I don't, I can't quite tell because trainers and suit, it's fine, but he's doing it wrong. And you know, you just look, it's the, the, they're like two box fresh white Stan Smiths. I, I know that, you know, I'm a man that likes a clean trainer I get stressed about, you know, even the slightest bit, slightest mark, but it's so like, it's, it's a bit like if Marks and Spencers or wherever you are in the world, whatever your sort of generic high street emporium, that's mm. like five years behind the time at best. It's a bit like they've been dressed by, by him. Like, oh, yeah. he's been dressed by them. It's so like someone's told them everything that's, that's been in or was in, in 2018 and they've done it, and they've still done it wrong. I, yeah. yeah, it's it's awful. I, I can see why you got bullied. <laughs> What's the opposite of jeans or a suit and trainers? Is it jeans, jeans and shoes? Jeans, jeans and, and shoes. shoes. But he, but he is quite jeans and shoe. He's yeah the bald Jeremy Clarkson of world football, and so he needs to embrace that with a, a boot cut jean. And a, and a shoe that's much too smart for the occasion. Yes. I looked at him last night and, you know, I, I know that in previous in previous uh, weeks of the tournament, his visage popped up on the screen and was subjected to boos, which, you know, they very quickly cut away. I do wonder now if when the TV cameras are on him, he's not actually on the big screen in the, in the, he's probably put an edict down, you know, you can show me on the television, but don't show me in the stadium because I don't want to know what people think of me. It's weird how these guys in positions of megalomaniac power don't like being booed. For some reason, I don't know. I did enjoy what happened to Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me ask you this one. Um, We have a few about Gabriel Jesus. So Kieran E says, the Gabriel Jesus injury ruins Arsenal's season. 
Disagree, but only because I think the season is already well on course to be better than anyone realistically expected. I do probably think it ruins the chances of winning the title. I just, I, I really like Eddie. I'm sure he will score some big goals in the coming weeks, but uh, he's not a, you know, he's not going to provide the assists, provide the off-ball work rate to the same level. I mean, I hope I hope he surprises me. I'm welcome to being surprised and I'm welcome to Arteta trying something different there, whether it's Martinelli, whether it's Smith-Rowe. Mm. But even when he wasn't scoring for so much of, of that first half, first third of the season, Gabriel Jesus was the, the one that was knitting everything together, more so than even Erdegaard or Saka or Xhaka, anyone you care to mention. It all worked, I think, and we'll only find out when he's gone, but I think a lot of it worked because Jesus was was versatile. He had this great understanding with Martinelli about where he should be and when, um, and that he was ego-free. Now, I'm not saying that Eddie has an ego, but he just doesn't have those qualities, that cocktail of qualities. And there's no one out there that does, that's kind of available to Arsenal midway through the season and that they could get in in time to, to make a tangible impact. So I think... It will probably mean that, that, that City pull clear, that Arsenal will drop a few points in the next few games. But I mean, look, that does not ruin the season. It's just, it's just like, you know, it could have been a lot better. Well, yes. Um, Maybe. It, yeah. I, I don't know if it ruins the season. It's it's difficult to say. It, it obviously is going to have a big impact. Um, so I disagree in the sense that I think Arsenal have shown enough this season to suggest that um, they have talent and they have ability and they have a bit of character and a bit of resilience. But I agree with you that what Gabriel Jesus gave the team was something more than Eddie can give the team. And it's not to say Eddie can't give us something. We had another one here. Um, let me ask you about this one. See if I can find it. Um GM underscore AFC said, Eddie and Kedia will contribute enough to keep us in the title race. And I, I sort of disagree with that. But then, you know, I don't think the question is, you know, is that Eddie's job to do everything to keep Arsenal in the title race? I think there is an onus on other players to continue to contribute, to maybe step up, to contribute a little bit more, to to maybe look at players who haven't been available this season to come back and, and to maybe uh, take up some of the slack. So someone like Fabio Vieira, who's hopefully going to have a better second half of the season, someone like Emil Smith-Rowe, if he's fit and, and can get back quickly, you know, he can score goals and he can make up for some of what we're missing in, in Gabriel Jesus. But yeah, I think it's going to be a big, big blow and it's a lot for the team to deal with. Um, let me ask you this one then from... Dan Keenan, 79. He said, we should not get carried away by reacting to the Gabriel Jesus injury, trying to sign risky, expensive gambles to try and win the league this season and stick to the long-term strategy. Agree. But depends who that, that risky gamble is. Mm. I mean, look, you know, I think Arsenal are almost certainly always going to be 
not the favourites whilst this vers- this iteration of Manchester City exists. Um, but I think what you need to do as a, as a club is is make sure you're always in position, waiting to pounce. If this is the year that something goes wrong, the injury strike, Guardiola quits, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I, I think the club are sort of clear-eyed enough and to know that this isn't about diving headfirst in to win one title. This is about putting yourself in a position to compete for the next five or six. Mm. Um, but then, you know, some risks are <laughs> do pay off spectacularly. Aaron Ramsdale, Ben White. I think we all thought of those as risky signings um, because they were incredibly expensive and uh, were not proven at a European level. They pay off. You know, we, we have seen that Mikel Arteta and Edu, especially Mikel Arteta, though, I think who, who as we all know, played a really outsized role in, in recruitment last summer in the summer of 2021 in particular. Um, that he, you know, his, his eye can be trusted, even if you think it's a punt, Tommy Asu. I'm literally, I'm just running mm. through every transfer going, actually, I think I remember a lot of them looking like punts that have worked out spectacularly. So if, if Mikel Arteta were to go to, uh, go to the Cronkies, go to Vinay and say, I think Joao Felix is the man and I think we should pay whatever Atletico Madrid want for him. That's a big risk because even at a young age, he's going to be on huge wages. Atletico will want to recoup a lot of money. Um, But I think Mikel Arteta has earned the right to take those risks and to have those risks backfire. Mm. And actually, I mean, the same for Edu because whoever you kind of want to give the credit to and it will always depend on who you ask, they've, They've done enough right. They've added enough value. Um, if they see a if they see a player, I, I tr- from what I understand, they are not in the mood to gamble and swing for the fences to get some striker to maybe win the title this this season. But if they find one, go for it. I think you've earned you should have earned the backing of Arsenal supporters by now. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with this one a little bit simply because of where we are in the table and what we've done to get there and it would feel like an opportunity lost but also I remember you know signings that weren't necessarily as well thought out as some of the ones that we uh, have made of late I think Arsenal have shown over the last couple of years that they will pay a premium for a player they think is the right player who's you know talented enough and who can come in and and do the job that Mikel Arteta wants them to do. I suppose what they're weighing up in this January window as well is that, you know, is someone like Mudrick, for example, a really talented, clearly a really talented player with a lot of potential, is that investment now going to give you what you need straight away? You know, even someone like Thomas Partey, I think it would be fair to say, took some time to get into his groove at Arsenal. Maybe it's slightly different for an attacking player, a winger, um, who can sort of terrorize defenses and doesn't necessarily have the the responsibility that someone like Thomas Partey had. But but that's it. And they're balancing that then with the with the knowledge that, that Gabriel Jesus is out for X amount of time. And that must push you to make a decision one way or the other or, or to to strongly consider moving forward something that you might have planned for the summer to January if terms can be agreed, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Mudrick, I'm 
thought we'd talk about him eventually is 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 a really fascinating one because like you say maybe all you need from him is is 3 to 5 goals between january and uh, and may and that might change whether that's t- turning a, a fourth place battle into comfortable champions league or it is keeping the title race alive or you know doing something none of us imagined you know those goals will could well pay off and um you know everything i understand is that that is you know, Mudrick, as everyone else has reported, and I'm not breaking news here, that he is a very real live target, top of the list. Um, and, you know, they are they have had conversations this week with Shakhtar. Um, I don't know. I I just, with, with, that, with that one in particular, I, I look at it and I go, if he's not going to get you over the top now and he costs a premium now, is it almost better taking a calculated risk in a different position where there may that player may have more meaningful impact. You know, Mudrik doesn't get in Arsenal's strongest 11, I don't believe, ahead of Martinelli and, and Saka. Um, if you can find someone that plays more as a wide forward striker, that's why the name I mentioned is Ishar Felix. Mm. Even if that's not the player you necessarily wanted, and even if you think this could actually like... I mean, you know, that specific one, do it as a loan or whatever. But even then, you, I think you kind of have to have to take a little bit of a punt on strengthening your your first eleven, if that's possible, if that's an avenue available to you. Even if that's a short term, mm. we need to strengthen our first eleven between now and early March, mid February. Those points count, could count for a lot. I, I, I really, and this is probably listeners are going, this, he does, the guy doesn't make any sense, but it's because I really vacillate on this. I don't know what the answer is. And uh, we don't, we won't know whether it's the, the recruitment decisions they make are right until long after even May. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I think the Mudrick one is really interesting because you, know, you could wait and then he could be even more of a hot property mm. come the summer. I think the thing will be, the, the price point because last summer Brentford agreed 25 million for him, right? And now Shakhtar are looking for 100 million. And he's done pretty well since then, but I'm not sure that, you know, whatever he's got, you know, eight goals and 10 assists, you know, across the Ukrainian Super League or the Ukrainian Premier League, sorry, and, and the Champions League is sufficient for a player's value to have quadrupled in the space of six months. Um, and I know, look, that's the way it works. Uh, a selling club is always going to put a high premium on a player uh, if they want to maybe um, create a, a bidding market for him. Somebody will go, oh, he's 100 million. We can get him for 75. That's a bargain. You know, it's not like football clubs haven't been that stupid in the past. Yeah. So, you know, we, we can see where Shakhtar are coming from. I think the thing from an Arsenal perspective will be putting a value on what he has done between the 25 million price point that they didn't go for, let's remember, last uh, last summer. They were, you know, were still interested in him, but didn't get to the point where a fee was agreed. And whatever it might cost to bring him in now, coupled with what they think he can contribute um, between now and, and May. Now, no, we've got a lot of football to play, but Martinelli on the left, Smith Rowe, when he comes back, where does he play? Is he going to play from the left or are you going to move him more central? Does Mudrick allow Martinelli to move into the centre forward position at times because Eddie can't play every game? 
you know, is that what they're thinking? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is either, but I do think it's just such an interesting, uh, an interesting situation because clearly Arsenal must have some plan in mind for him, for him to be the top priority, for him to be the main guy. Yeah, that is a that that to me is the the bit that I can't get my head around at mm. that price point. Maybe mm. the the view is just actually that's what you have to pay for a and because City do it, that's what you have to pay for a first reserve, a a first winger up off the bench mm. to see when Smith Rowe is available. I kind of even have my doubts as to whether that's that's where that money should be going at, at such a high level when the time will be coming where you need to up you know you need to build your new midfield, your post-Jacker, yeah. post-Partey midfield. Um, the, t- the time will come where you conclude, I believe, that Eddie Nketiah, you need a better second striker. Um, and that will be quite difficult now you've given him 100 grand a week. So, I mean, like, but like you, like you say, and like going back to what I was saying at the start, Edu and Arteta have kind of earned the right that they have to be trusted that there is a plan there for how he fits into the 11, into mm. the 15, um, so yeah, it's really intriguing because it is, and I know they, they, you know, they're saying a hundred million because from, from what I've told, they're basically saying that's what Anthony costs. That's what Jack Grealish costs. So why shouldn't we ask for that? Well, mm. they, they know it won't be anywhere near that if they do agree a fee, but, um, like that just seems a huge amount of money for a not, not starting 11 player. Maybe this is me being being old-fashioned. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe he could be a starting player in, you know, 12 months' time. You just don't yeah. know how things develop and what circumstances might propel him to to the first team. Um, but yeah, this is it's going to be a very interesting January. Um, here's one of me, last one from me anyway, uh, before I do a few more. Um, Arsenal will spend £50 million in the transfer market in January. Agree. I mean, that's maybe you know, not maybe in one go, but yeah, <laughs> maybe it's like 40, 45. Yeah. But it, they are on the lookout for that player in attack in particular that can, you know, like everything we've just been discussing that can maybe take them over the top this season and contribute for years to come. Mm. And again, kind of contradicting what I was just saying, that's what those players cost. <laughs> uh, so I think they will get that player and therefore I kind of have to conclude that it will be, yeah, about 40, 50 million. Sounds about right. I don't know what you think because there's so often that we think this coming into January because they know that there's this one area that will make a big impact mm. and they quite often don't don't bite the bullet. I mean, I think what's fascinating now when you look back to last January, right, and, and the, the clamour for Arsenal to sign... Well, anybody, because they let about four players go. They lost Aubameyang and then, uh, you know, who left? Callum Chambers. Um, Marie. Yeah, Pablo Marie, a couple of others, you know. So they really streamlined the squad in January. And we know they were sort of after Vlavic and, and everything else. But when you look back on it now, as difficult as that was to live through, the upside of it was that they had a plan for the summer, that they knew, they probably knew at that point that, uh, Gabriel Jesus was a player that they really wanted to go for. So that was there. Whereas I think this time, I think this time it's a little bit different because of 
you know where we are, um, the position in the in the table, and the fact that there were still a couple of bits outstanding anyway. You know, from the summer window, where when I think about what Mikel Arteta said a few weeks back or a few a few months back, he said we have to maximise every transfer window. I think it'd be fair to say Arsenal did not maximise last January's transfer window. Not that they didn't try, but they didn't get there in the end. Whereas I think now it's much more important for them to to do something this window. Um, the Jesus injury, you know, leaving that aside, even if Gabriel Jesus had been uh, fit and available, I still think this is the kind of January window where, you know, if you can add a player who gives you something, then then you do it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I'm fascinated to see what happens when the window opens in about, what, 16 days? Will we have something organized before that? You know, it's one of those where you, you look and you think, you know, the sooner you have that player, you don't want to be, we don't want to be sitting here on January 31st f- refreshing uh, Sky Sports yeah, News. You know, going, yeah, yeah. Has David Ornstein tweeted yet? Nothing. Damn. You know, I think we need to get that done uh, as quickly as we can. So if they're talking to Shakhtar, who knows? We'll, we'll see. Okay, here's one from One Finn who says, Olivier Giroud is the most overrated, underrated player ever. The number of people and pundits who say he's underrated suggest he is, in fact, rated. And I say this as someone who likes him a lot. So so not only do I agree with this, I, I don't know if I'm the inventor of this because I, I suspect I'm probably not. It's not the most original thought, but I have a name for this. This is the Lee Carsley paradigm, a player who is so <laughs> consistently labelled underrated that actually, yeah. Oh, but do I think it about Giroud? Um not quite. I don't think, I think he's about correctly rated now because I think he is in this current vintage of Giroud and, and maybe the player we saw at Chelsea and the player we saw in his best moments at Arsenal mm. is what Arsene Wenger said he was after that Olympiacos game. You know, the the one where he made amends, not the other one. Mm. Um, <laughs> or the, the many, many games where it went, went wrong. You know, he's one of the best strikers in Europe uh, and I don't think there is a better... Uh, I'm open to suggestions, but I don't think there's a better striker at bringing the best out of players around him. You know, the quotes, we all bring them up now. Eden Hazard for one, Mm. Kylian Mbappe. They all say, uh, Leao as well, they all say their favourite player to play with is Olivier Giroud. I don't know if anyone's ever asked Mesut Ozil that question, maybe like kind of in the dog days of 2016, the 2015-16 season. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not then. (laughs) But... I don't, I don't know if he's underrated. I, I very much enjoy the principle of that question, but I think he is maybe maybe he is still a little underrated. He's one of the best out there and he, he keeps getting better. Yeah. I mean, I think I always rated him for what he was, which was like a 20-goal-a-season player. He did that consistently at Arsenal. That's what he showed he was, and that's what he was always going to be. You know, somebody who, you know, the, the chance he missed against... Um, Morocco the other night, not the one that he hit off the post, <laughs> but the one where it was just almost too easy for him and he just sort of clipped it around the post. I mean, I've seen him, I've seen him miss those plenty of times for Arsenal, right? If there, were, if there was a player that I had to both pick to not take, you know, put at the bottom of my list for the sitter and at the absolute top of my list for not only is this not a shooting opportunity, I don't even know how you can kick the ball towards goal. Yeah. That's Olivier Giroud. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
look, he's having a great tournament. It's going to be um, going to be very interesting to see how Sunday's uh, final goes. Um, let me see what else have we got here. Uh, Keckles one four three seven says Arsenal will make a surprise sale this winter. Not this winter. I don't think the timing's quite right, and I I don't really see there being an an obvious candidate out there. I mean, look, everyone said, and I was sat there saying, from what I'm hearing, they're going to ask offer Gabriel a new contract, and everyone in the summer was going, Gabriel might be that surprise sale, you know. Mm. I'm, I'm going to post my W there, as they say, yeah, uh, on the rare occasion it comes. <laughs> I just don't think right now there's any any value at all in losing someone important from this squad. And only exception is if someone out there comes and offers you insane money. And those clubs don't, those clubs don't exist in Arsenal's world right now. You know, Real Madrid and, and Barcelona are too busy fighting their, you know, their divorce proceedings from UEFA in the, the European Court of Justice. I don't particularly see PSG as a club that are right now have any of Arsenal players at the top of the radar. Mm. So, you would be mad, mad, even if it's, even if Bukayo Saka comes, it's not going to happen. If Bukayo Saka knocks on Mikel Arteta's door and says, I want out, um, you know, I won't play for you again this season. This is not going to happen. If he does. <laughs> Famously <would> still... <laughs> temperamental, <laughs> nasty it's piece all... of work, Bukayo Saka. Yeah, we know what he's like. I'm, I'm assuming this is some sort of Freaky Friday <laughs> scenario with Pierre Van Hoydonk. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only explanation I have for how this has happened. Even in this bizarre set of circumstances, if the only teams that are interested or that can buy your players off you are Premier League teams, you would never in a million years sell them. You know, not only would you be pilloried, you'd be strengthening a rival, diminishing your own mm. hand. So at the risk of sounding foolish, strongly disagree. Strongly disagree. I do too, unless you categorize Cedric to Fulham as a, as a, would be a surprise. That you got off his wages. <laughs> it's a different kind of surprise. Um, BF Jesus says, finishing in the Champions League places is a more significant achievement than winning the Europa League. So I'm interested to get your take on this as well. I would disagree coming at this as someone who doesn't particularly have much experience of, of Arsenal winning major silverware in Europe. I know that there's obviously been the Cup Winners' Cup and I know that Europe, Europa League is second tier. No one dreams about you know their club playing in or winning it. But I actually think there's this, this thing that's unique to, almost to Arsenal among the big six teams, well, City and, uh, I mean, for Tottenham, clearly any trophy is just unbelievable. Um, but I think maybe, say, if you were to compare it to a Chelsea, a Liverpool, I think maybe they would say would actually that it's a more impressive achievement to get top four if they were in Arsenal situation. But I think with Arsenal and the, the fact that they are such a big historic club with such a poor limited Europa, European trophy cabinet. I think it would mean a little bit more to win the Europa League final. Mm. Uh, I mean, also just anything to banish the memories of Baku. Well, yeah, that. Anything. Look, you know, the top four is decided over 38 games, maybe 35 games, you know, depending, you know, how, how high up in that top four you are. 
your point about Arsenal's lack of European success is is um, you know something I've thought about quite a lot. You know because Arsenal is a you know it's a huge club um, that should have, particularly during the period when we were easily among the best clubs in Europe with some of the most talented players in Europe. You know that we never won the Champions League is a source of of huge regret, and there have been other. Uh, European finals that that haven't gone our way. So I think you could make the argument that finishing in the top four is probably a better achievement than, um, you know, beating, what, three other teams in the group stages and then maybe some half-decent team and you could get another half-decent team and then maybe you play a you know, two-thirds decent team in the semi-final and you, you could beat a decent team or a half-decent, whatever it might be, in the final of, of the Europa League. I think you could say over the course of 38 games, if you do what you need to do, that's maybe a better achievement. But for the for the experience, for the joy, for the success, for the trophy, for for, you know, making an indelible mark in the history books... You know, when you look at a football club on on Wikipedia and you scroll down and it says achievements or successes, it doesn't say finished fourth in 2008, finished fourth in 2000. It doesn't list that. They're not actually achievements. So I think, you know, personally speaking, I would, I, I hope we can couple both this season. But I think just just from the sheer uh, – what are you in football for? To win things as much as possible. You know, we know it's not possible for every club, but I just think it would be it would be a, a, an incredible thing for, for Arsenal to add another European trophy. It's 1994 since we long did Long weekend it. in Budapest as well. There you it go. It would be a very long weekend if they won. It certainly would. There'd be some, some casualties along the way. Some people have never <laughs> made it back from Budapest, but we will remember them. They will stay in our hearts. Keep to their memory. Forever. <laughs> okay, here's the final one. It's also about a, uh, another competition. Uh, Martinelli the Elephant says, the FA Cup is a needless distraction from the league campaign. Uh, no, uh, disagree ever so slightly, mm-hmm. but um, that's only because there's 14 games gone now and it's only, I say only, it's Oxford United in the third round and in theory. I, I, what I say is this season, I would say Arsenal supporters probably shouldn't be devastated if they were to go out whilst also at the same time winning the Premier League games that are taking place around it, I think obviously hazy memories, but I seem to remember that when they were beaten by Nottingham Forest, the form was not exactly going great Mm. in the Premier League as well. I think that was kind of the frustration. And obviously this was different. This was being in a top four race as opposed to being in a title race. But um, I would maybe look on the FA Cup at the moment in a similar way to how... Arsene Wenger did in, in the years around the invincible, you know, invincible season. We, we forget that Arsenal didn't, they obviously had 2005 mm. um, they had the double season, but they were, they were not winning it. A lot of the, a lot of the wins that made him the most successful did come in later Wenger years. Yeah. I would, 
I would say, you know, play your B team, play your reserves and not particularly, I wouldn't be devastated if Arsenal are doing well in the league and, and fall out the FA Cup. I can see that side of things for sure. Um, and squad depth, I think, between now and May is going to be a really important factor for um, for Arsenal and for all the clubs. You know, players who've had, you know, people away at the World Cup and teams who've had pretty much their whole team resting and they're not match fit. And I think we're going to see perhaps a, a second half of the season, which is replete with, with injuries. So squad depth becomes even more important. And if you're stretched across a number of competitions, then you, you may have to prioritize. I just think that there is something in Mikel Arteta that he is trying to instill a culture of winning, mm. a culture where regardless of the competition or how seriously some fans might take that competition or the opposition, that for him it's a game that sh that has to be won. Um so I don't necessarily expect him to to ease up too much in the FA Cup. I think he wants players who can play every three or four days, as he said, and produce every three or four days. And uh, like, unless there's some kind of disaster in, in terms of the squad and injuries and, and stuff like that, um, I don't see him rotating too heavily, you know, depending on the opposition we get, so... Uh, I would disagree with that one from that perspective anyway. All right. Well, look, we'll leave it there. James, uh, as always, thank you very much. Enjoy the final on Sunday. Any any predictions? Want to stick your neck on the line? What's your what's the, the old romantic inside James Bench thinking about this game on, on Sunday? Yeah, I'm, I want Lionel Messi to win. I'm not even going to be too... You know, I'm not going to be too coy about that. I want him to win and I want, yeah, the rest of Argentina's fine if they want it as well. That's up to them. <laughs> um, I think they will as well. I don't know about you. It's, it's definitely going to be tight. I don't think we're going to be overloaded with goals. Um, I think it might be quite enjoyably tense. Uh, maybe sort of 2-1 mm. late winner from Argentina, but it could go either way. Yeah, I think it, you know, both teams have obviously superstar quality in there and both teams have um, flaws, which I think could make this an entertaining game. I hope it's a bit more goal crazy than just a 2-1. A but, you know, like you, I think the romantic in me with uh, all due respect to our many French listeners and friends, uh, I, w I would love to see Messi win it just, you know, to, to crown a, a career which has been so unbelievable. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, we'll leave it there. James, as always, thanks very much. Thank you, my pleasure. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much indeed to James Benge. You can find him on Twitter. He is at James Benge, at James Benge, and he writes about football for CBS Sports. So that is just about that. James and I, James McNicholas, not James Benge, will be here on Sunday evening with an Arscast Extra for you. So we will be recording after the World Cup final. No doubt we'll be talking about that, but talking about all the other bits and pieces as well. Lots of transfer stuff. We'll give that some attention, I think, on Sunday. And what we'll also do on Sunday is give you a final figure when it comes to the goodly morning mugs and how much money we are going to be able to donate to the two charities in question. So on top of all the entertainment you already get, it'll be interesting to see just how much we'll be able to donate this Christmas time. Thanks to all of you guys uh, who've bought goodly morning mugs. So thank you very, very much indeed for doing so. And uh, that money is going to go to an incredibly good cause or two incredibly good causes. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Enjoy the final on Sunday, whatever your preference for the winner might be. As I said, James and I will be recording Sunday evening, so we'll have that out for you probably sometime around nine, half nine Sunday night. Until then... Take it easy, folks, and we'll catch you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome to the future, where all human industry has been replaced by machines, where all art is created by algorithmic artificial intelligence, and where all podcasts are produced by feeding hundreds of hours of archived material into a computer, and with the push of a button, a new episode is sent directly to your embedded hearing chip. Arsplug Arscast! Parameters equal football plus Irishman plus lots of swearing. Ah, what a load of me old fucking bollocks. You big stupid looking concha. That was never offside. Where's me Guinness?
Today's episode was brought to you by Stamps.com. If we see you outside, we will stamp you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 